Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. My grandmother came from the western Ukraine. Her father's name was Dionysius, and he decided they would come to Canada. For decades up to the outbreak of World War I, Canada actively courted immigrants from Eastern Europe, including 150,000 from what is now known as Ukraine. Canada needed them to farm and fill a growing demand for manual labor. He ended up in Sault Ste. Marie, and he was a day laborer wherever he was needed. In the lumber business, in the paper business, in the steel business, that's what he did until World War I broke out. But as World War I broke, those migrants, including some who were Canadian citizens, were targeted by the state. There was a royal proclamation that was issued in August 15, 1914. It basically said these individuals will later be described as enemy aliens, aliens of enemy origin. They were prohibited from engaging in the kind of activity that would be seen as a security risk and threat. The government created the War Measures Act, which allowed Canada to set up dozens of internment camps right across the country. In total, there was 8,579 individuals. Of that number, some 5,000 were of Ukrainian origin. It's a hidden chapter of Canadian history that's now slowly emerging as descendants of those imprisoned in forced labor camps uncover their stories. The question that I ask myself is, do I write about Ukrainian history as a way of giving a, a, a salve to my, my own father's trauma? Because he had the Ukrainian beaten out of him. And I'm in some ways bringing the Ukrainian back to the Forchuk family. Documentary producers James Motluck and Jeff Preyra bring us the voices of internment. My name is Kathy Baudet. My grandmother was a great storyteller, and I got the opportunity to spend lots of time with her. I was able to tape some of her life story, her life in Ukraine, her journey to Canada, and the things that happened to her when she was a young girl. Now you said about your father sitting at the wall. In the war? Yeah. Well, he didn't register himself. Uh, he was supposed to register himself every Saturday morning. Because he was drunk, he didn't go to register. The two soldiers came to come to the prison camp. She said that he was in a prison camp. She said he worked at the locks for a while, which was a federal 
project, they deepened and widened the locks. And she describes them as pulling rocks out. And if you go around Sault Ste. Marie, you will see the sandstone rocks that were taken out to build the canal and were used in the construction of many of our buildings. She remembered the, the soldiers coming to get him, but she said she remembered specifically they had long brown leather boots on. And because he didn't go to register, they just came and took him away to the prison camp. I went to the local museum because I knew from my grandmother's stories that there was some type of camp here. And the, uh, the curator of the local museum said to me, that never happened in Sault Ste. Marie. My name is John Parniak. That's John Stanley Parniak. Uh, I was born here in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, lived here most of my life pretty well and worked here. My grandfather had one brother that had preceded him coming to Canada. So at 17 years old, he decided to come to Canada and boarded a, a vessel. He came to uh, Sault Ste. Marie, uh, and his brother was here. Uh, he was a young age, so I don't know whether they just were doing checks or what the issue was, but the government uh, would take these people and put them in uh, basically a prisoner of war camp and they would move them across the country depending on whatever reasoning they used because they were spread across Canada. He was fortunate enough to stay here in Sault Ste. Marie. In a book called In Fear of the Barbed Wire Fence, dealing with the uh, imprisonments here, I found my grandfather's name in it. And in pursuing that, I ended up finding a document uh, that I got from the government uh, verifying that my grandfather, Nick Parniak, uh, subject Austria, uh, was in Sault Ste. Marie. It's got his age and height and his description and had a particular scar on him which I recognized having, have, having seen and that he would have to report at time and places as the chief of police of Sault Ste. Marie directed. I went through the archives um, of the, the Sioux Daily Star, which by this time had been turned over to our local library. And uh, I resided there for several months. Uh, they knew who I was and, and uh, that I would be taking the microfilm machine for hours at a time. As I looked through, I found little snippets of where the detainees were held, and it was at an arena, and that's where the, the, the local army regiment worked out, and they had a jail there, but then there were, the jail was too small, so they moved them to um, a boxcar near Whitefish Island, and then from there they went onto Whitefish Island in some buildings that were there that are now torn down. I did find in the two years that I covered 70 articles regarding the internment camp. Those years, 1914, 15, 16. So people had to have known about it. 
My name is Bogdan Kurdan. I'm Professor Emeritus at St. Thomas More College at the University of Saskatchewan. I've written extensively on the subject of internment over the years. The War Measures Act allowed for something called orders in council. Throughout the war, uh, these ordinances were, were being introduced. And one ordinance in particular, which was really significant, was PC 2721. Part of PC 2721 was um, this need to register individuals uh, and the creation of, of registration centers. These centers were organized in places that had uh, large concentrations of these so-called enemy aliens. This registration process, in effect, was a surveillance system. It really speaks to sort of anxieties that are produced by war hysteria. And this, this would increase and the rhetoric would become even more vicious over time. All of, of those stories kind of came flooding back. And I said, this is what my grandmother has talked about. And I felt there was some, not that I ever doubted that it happened, but just some vindication for her. And I realized that this was far bigger than just my grandmother's memories and stories. My name is Marcia Skripik. I'm a children's author, and I am also an attorney descendant. My grandfather decided to come to Canada. He was from Bukovina. He was just a teenager at the time. We think he was about 16 years old. We're not exactly sure. He was about to get put into the army, and he didn't want to do that. But also, he just couldn't make a living because, you know, he was a peasant. His father was already in New York, and he was supposed to meet him, but his father had remarried. He found someone, a quite young girl, and married her. And so my grandfather and great-grandfather split apart. Uh, they actually t took different names, and um, uh, my grandfather came to Canada and had a beautiful uh, farm. He wanted to get his mother and sister to Canada. That was his goal. Just before the war started, he had sent all his money to Ukraine to get them here. Never arrived. Nobody knows what happened to it. Was it stolen? Did it sink? Who knows? But it never got to them. My grandfather was an expert with dynamite, just because that was how he had cleared his land. He also was over six feet tall, which is unusual at that time very strong. He would report to the police on a regular basis with his neighbor, and they would just go all the time. One time when he went and, you know, did everything right, they detained him, they didn't detain the neighbor. And it was just such a shock. There was no difference between the two of them, except he was younger and stronger and knew how to blow up dynamite really well. And they needed a lot of mountains and rock and stuff to be blown up. He was just this young kid, really. But also, he was just, like, really strong. He was like an ox. He was, you know, um, prime internment material. Huge latitude was given to uh, local officials to assess, you know, who would be interned and why would they be interned. This wide latitude enabled certain things to occur that, to be honest, is just quite extraordinary. 
And there's this one fellow who was interned, and, he, and while he was in internment, he protested the fact that he had been in prison. He had been arrested by a local police officer, largely because that local police officer had eyes on the prisoner's wife and thought that by having the individual arrested and interned, that he'd be in a position to um, move in on, on this person's spouse. That wide latitude uh, extended to a whole bunch of individuals that, in effect, could parlay their authority into activity that would see these people removed for no other reason than they served their interests, uh, the interests of those who were doing the, uh, the, the arrest. There were newspaper clippings about how many men from Sault Ste. Marie were held. It started out with four, and then it was 40, and then it was 80, and then it was 400. So... These men were just rounded up and uh, placed at whatever workplace because sometimes my grandfather didn't only work at the locks. Sometimes he would, he would work at the, the developing steel mill or the paper mill was being developed at the same time. And it turns out that they were, they were doing regular jobs. And then at some point they were told that when the war was over, they would get paid. But in the meantime, they did this work and they didn't get any pay. There was a kind of mentality of, of paranoia in the nation, which I see as a kind of lateral violence. I'm Sandra Semchuk. I'm the author of the book, The Stories Were Not Told, Canada's First World War Internment Camps. Before the outbreak of World War I, uh, Ukrainian people were seen in a very low way. They were seen as other. They, they were disrespected. Ukrainian people were compelled to stay in their own groups because of this kind, these kinds of racializations. So the, the prejudice is already there. And then when, when war comes in, fear comes in. And it's very easy to transfer and project that fear and that paranoia onto people that you already regard to be inferior. There was violence on the streets against immigrants, and even people who weren't immigrants but had been in Canada for a while, but if they had a name that sounded like it was from that part of the world, you know, people would be beaten up just because they smelled like garlic. my grandfather felt, that if he didn't escape, he would die there. One of the things that he learned how to do in the internment camp was run carrying a log on his shoulders, and it actually ruined his back. You can just imagine what that would do to your back, all the little micro-fractures that you would have. He just felt that um, it was either he was either going to be shot by a bullet escaping or he was just gonna die of exposure, or he had a chance to actually, you know, achieve an escape. And so that's why he just ran. But he felt the bullets grazing his ear as he was running. I don't think we really quite understand or appreciate what you know what they were required to do, and more importantly, without without respite. 
So the nature and the conditions of the camp was just heavy, heavy work, but also the kind of toil that comes from, you know, laboring without, without rest. Because the, the government, the, these governments or these contracting agents wanted value for the money. So quotas had to be met, schedules had to be met. Regular day would be 12, 13, 14 hours, sometimes longer. And in this context, you begin to see people, in effect, um, despairing, uh, losing all sight of, of, of any possibility of deliverance from, from their, their torment. Some of them just succumb to what is often referred in the um, literature on psychology as the barbed wire disease. You know, this is kind of this, this phenomenon of, of, of being incarcerated um, with, um, with no, no prospect of appeal or release. And so what you're seeing is escapes, escapes that were aplenty, all under the threat of being shot. Um, some people were shot, but these are the kinds of desperate measures of people who felt that they had no alternative um, except to flee under, you know, a volley of gunfire. Philip Yasnowski has a story in, in the book. Uh, he was an, he was an, an internee. And he tells the story of, um, I think it was a couple of hundred men come from Petawawa, their march to Kapuskasing. And the story was that they wanted to have their holy day, the Annunciation, honored by not having to work and having a day of, of prayer, as they would have done in, in the old country. And... The commander said, oh, to hell with your holy days. So they got together and decided that they weren't going to work that day. And a series of punishments were then given to them, like the black hole, which was about four by four, uh, which they would be put into if they were seen to be having done something wrong, and carrying 50 pounds of flour, you know, 30 miles on your back being deprived of food, being deprived of, of warm clothing, having the straw taken out of your bed and those kinds of things. Now they were being, they had been marched to campus casing and, and they're very weak and they're, they're struggling to, to come into the camp and they're very sallow, their color is very bad. There was a kind of cruelty that was being uh, exhibited by the guards a meanness. When my grandfather escaped from the internment camp, he hid out in the Lethbridge area and he worked in the mines. He was on the lam for a couple years. He just changed his name. That's when he became Forchuk. Before that, he was Fisuk. The way that he found out that um, the war had ended was it was the end of the great uh, flu pandemic and people were supposed to be wearing masks and he was sitting having coffee with another internee and a policeman came up to him. He thought that he was, he says, you're right, my hands are up, I escaped, I'm, I'm an escaped internee. And the policeman said, no, we don't care about internees anymore. No, you're being fined, I think it was 25 cents because your mask is down. That's how we found out the war was over. You have this sort of disconnect 
these individuals who had come to Canada with the view of both settling and committing to this country, and then suddenly the government um, introduces this, the, these measures that, that eventually lead to this, this thing called internment and their internment. The vast majority who are interned were reintegrated into Canadian society and, and were, were told to carry on. How do you carry on when in the fact that you've just experienced the loss of five years of your life in a prison camp? When he uh, finally went back to his homestead, they sold his farm on him. His neighbors, his Ukrainian neighbors, divvied up all his property, his livestock and, you know, his tools and everything. And it was sort of like, ah, well, he's gone. It was really devastating because it was more than just that you were detained, interned, that you had your freedom taken away, that you were forced to do slave labor, and that when you escaped, you were shot at. It was more than that. It was that the people that you thought were your friends and your extended community also turned their back on you. The church turned their back on the uh, internees as well. And so there is this feeling that if the government took them away, then they must have done something to deserve it. So they were looked at um, as convicts, criminals, people not to really deal with. It was really devastating for him to go back to that same community and to realize he was an outcast. The kind of arrests that did occur would be largely based on their status as enemy aliens. Because the net was thrown widely, you did have individuals who were interned, but in effect um, were naturalized uh, citizens. In the case of uh, Jacob Condro, his son John Condro was arrested as a young lad. He was um, 18 years of age, I believe that was. And the father um, was naturalized before the war and in fact was a British subject, you know, Canadian citizen, British subject. And under the law, uh, his son would, in effect, also become a Canadian citizen. And the father, Jacob, um, basically would engage in a wide-ranging appeal to have his son released and said that he was illegally arrested and uh, he wanted justice. To Brigadier General Edward Cruikshank, regarding my son, John Condro, how is it that Canada would take their own people and put them in an internment camp? Please... Let him go. Sincerely, his father, Jacob Condro. His file was circulated around and sat on tables. And the young uh, John Condro um, saw his moment for escape. And notwithstanding the efforts to gain his release, he scrambled into the bush under a volley of gunfire. And he disappeared. Uh, effectively, the, the boy was lost to his family. There were a lot of letters to the YMCA or letters to the Swedish consulate and the Swiss consulate, speaking of the conditions in the camps. To the YMCA Service for Prisoners of War, April 19, 1918. We beg to inform you that our fellow prisoners in internment camp at Morrissey are exposed to a very brutal treatment by the Canadian soldiers and non-commissioned officers doing police duty there. It is impossible for them to write to you stating the facts. So we must request you, for the sake of humanity, to inform the Royal Consulate of Sweden and beg him to exercise his influence to put a stop to the cruel treatment of prisoners of war in Morrissey. Signed, Vasil Doskoch, head of the Prisoner of War Camp Committee, internment camp, Vernon, British Columbia. There were letters from women in Calgary 
they were fired from their jobs because of their national nationality and had no way to, to survive. You could see how dire their, their circumstances were as women and as, as children whose husbands were interned. I don't know what I shall do. I was in City Hall asking for support for myself and for my child. They sent me to the government office and they told me to go to work and give my child away. Now I write you to ask what I shall do. Shall I give our dear child away or not? Your loving wife, Josie Mundi. Seeing these letters made things very real for me. As a historical penetration, the letters were very, very profound for me. On Ideas, you're listening to Voices of Internment, a documentary about Canada's little-known history of Ukrainian internment during World War I. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. During World War I, under the War Measures Act, Canada forced more than 8,000 people, mostly Ukrainian immigrants, into labor camps. The impact of those experiences are still felt by descendants of internment camp survivors to this day. The internment set the template for others to follow, including that of Japanese Canadians during World War II. This documentary is called Voices of Internment. Whitefish Island Reserve. This is part of the Batchawana Band. This canal was one of the places where he worked. But you can see how close the paper mill is there. Algoma Steel's there, so internee labor was used for all of those projects. Obviously there was police um, army or police or whatever with gates. My grandmother said her father coughed all the time. So sometimes I wonder, you know, those men living in these conditions in this kind of weather, so close to the water, so it's damp, it's cold. Um, I, I don't know how they survived. The way she would come. Her mother would cook. Usually it was pebeha or in Polish. My grandmother, she would take a little bundle and she would go to the locks and, and go out onto Whitefish Island. She would bring food to her father there. And now we're on Portage Lane, which is where my grandmother lived. 
and it's got a really there see this she always said it wasn't a house it was half a house see the, the way the the, the uh, ceiling is the roof is and this is the place there she would walk past this is now uh, an Algoma steel parking lot but at the time the uh, it was it was flat and you walk to the river and there were log booms that were just floating there waiting for the paper mill to take them in and uh, they would walk on the log booms and uh, catch whitefish what and and when she visited her father and brought food that's often she would they would have fish and and better uh, in some of the news one of the newspaper articles that I researched city council was very upset because there were something like 80 families applying to the town for uh, support and the the city did not want to pay them so then I started thinking about a woman coming from a land where there was no English spoken living in a home with uh, um, you know two girls and then two more girls and then eventually a little boy so she didn't get out a lot so the only people she probably socialized with were other Ukrainians and um, so how was she to fend for herself when she had no skills no training in the new country she was basically left on her own. My grandfather, he realizes that they sold his farm on him. He doesn't have anything and he has to start from scratch. By that time, um, all the really good property was gone. The homesteads were gone. So it wasn't until he was in his 40s that he was able to save enough money to buy a homestead that was of similar quality uh, to the one that he lost. And by that time, he wasn't able to work because his back injuries were really catching up with him. My dad was born in 1929. And um, so when he was 12, had to quit school and run the farm. And he had to do it because his um, dad couldn't work. His mother couldn't run the farm on her own. Uh, and what do you do for family responsibility? And I have a picture of my dad when he was about 12 years old and he had just been given a bike for his birthday. Just this little pipsqueak of a kid, you know? And he had to run the farm. And he ran the farm until he was 21 years old. My grandfather, when he was working here afterwards in the steel plant, was a blacksmith. Presumably there was some cutbacks in the steel plant from depression or whatever. He ends up working on the railway in Karche, which is a large roundhouse for the railway uh, near Sudbury. That's where he met my grandmother. They got married. They ended up moving back to Sault Ste. Marie. He never really talked about the internment. He, the people were all reluctant at that time to talk. My grandmother would talk about her past history because she came from Czechoslovakia. And my grandfather, none of them would. Uh, they just uh, did not want to talk. The word internment was never used, but my dad was uh, a nosy parker, let's just put it that way. 
He liked to know what everybody was up to, and he was extremely curious about his dad and um, his dad's friends that would come and speak in the barn or like they'd go out into the middle of the field to speak or in a room when no one else was there, but they always wanted to speak secretly. And that um, intrigued my father. And so he would follow and, you know, hide behind a tree or listen through a vent or whatever to hear what was up. And that's how he found out that these men had been interned as well. And they were talking about how they were doing because they couldn't talk to anyone else about their experience because it was a deep, dark secret. It was a deep shame, but also a secret. My grandfather was a really smart man and he would have been someone who would have run for mayor or you know city clerk or something like that but he would never put his name forward because he was afraid that then his secret would be discovered and so it was very frustrating for him because he felt that uh, he could have contributed a lot more to the community but he wasn't allowed to because of internment it just tinged his entire life and for my dad it did too and it was a secret Guido would talk about it when he visited us, but, you know, he would say he was detained or um, the government um, put him in jail for something he didn't do. The way that I found out, there was a newspaper article, it was actually an op-ed in the Globe and Mail on, on the back pages of, you know, one of those full comment things um, in, I think, the late 80s, maybe 1988 or 89, and it was by Lubomir Luchuk, and it was um, about the barbed wire fences, behind the barbed wire fences, and it was about all these Ukrainians who had been interned. So I called my dad up, and I said, Dad, did you read that story in the Globe and Mail? He said, I did. And I said, um, did you know about this? He says, Marsha, that's what happened to your grandfather. And I said, well, it doesn't, I've never heard the term, term interned. And he says, neither have I, but that's exactly what happened. It's exactly how they described it. And he says, I, I can't believe that it's taken this long for other people to figure that out. To me, it was just like, it was just such a revelation that it had happened to many people because up to that time, honestly, I thought my grandfather had done something really bad. We knew there was things that happened during the, that period. I mean, I wasn't born then. I had no idea what to expect. Um, so I, I can't say that I was shocked. I was more pleased to see that I verified that he was here <laughs> and the information was there and there should be another document now, which led me to the uh, internment document, uh, the release one. I never did find a, a documentation saying why he was uh, incarcerated at that time. My understanding, like I say, it was a fairly liberal, liberal incarceration for most parts. The biggest problem, I think, with incarceration is people's attitudes and how they get treated. <laughs> and so I would presume it varied from person to person. He got through it. Uh, he was very stressed out by it when I once, uh, like I say, I had a, my, my, my career later was as a police officer. And... When you're young and you get on the job, I was fooling around with him at his home, and I uh, put handcuffs on him. And he got very upset. But we got over that, and everything worked out fine. Uh, nobody would say why. I don't know how, how it was related, whether it was related to something that may have happened to him prior, earlier, or whatever. But it was just, uh, God, God, 
lifeguard. When we think of trauma, we think of when really adverse or threatening things happen to, to individuals. But intergenerational trauma is a little different. In terms of intergenerational trauma, the impacts of what took place within the survivor group, those impacts can be passed down from, from generation to generation through the social environment. So for example, in the family, uh, in the greater community, uh, and through this term uh, we call epigenetics. So there's a biological component as well. My name is Brent Bezo. I'm a lecturer and researcher in the field of intergenerational trauma from the Department of Psychology at Carleton University in Ottawa. As a defense strategy, when an individual or a community experiences trauma, they adopt uh, what's sometimes referred to by psychologists as this kind of code of silence. So they don't talk about their experiences. Individuals who, you know, adopt this approach and become parents, the young kids can pick up on it. They realize, okay, Something might be, you know, wrong, quote unquote, with, uh, uh, with a parent, with mom or dad. Maybe they're having emotional outbursts if there's PS PTSD involved. Uh, maybe they're seeing, you know, a bit of depressive mood or a lot of depressive mood in a parent. And yet the children do not understand necessarily why this is going on. Uh, sometimes the children will become, you know, confidants uh, of, of the parents. Um, give them emotional support because if the parents are traumatized, they can't necessarily give emotional tr support to their children or others in general. So the children start to adopt that role. And this all stems from, from this concept of, of being silent. Talking about intergenerational trauma, my dad, to his dying day, kept on going back and saying, I never had a chance to have an education because I had to quit school at age 12. And his older brother went into the army uh, in you know World War II, but my dad wasn't old enough. My dad was born in 1929. So he wasn't old enough. And so his older brother got away because he went into the army, which meant that he also could go to university. And so everybody knew how smart he was. And this really bothered my father. And my father was self-educated, very brilliant man, but um, would make all the kinds of mistakes someone who's self-taught does, right? And uh, that just weighed on him his entire life. Over and over again, and as I listened you know, to the descendants talk about their, their loved ones, what I heard was, was, was that they were, the, the shame and the humiliation came from not understanding who they were, not seeing them for who they were, not recognizing them, and, 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 and being treated like you were of, of no value. One of the people who, who talks about it the most is, is Marshall Forchuk and his story about his dad, uh, Yurko Forchuk. His dad had one moment been you know, the, the person who had a farm and animals and uh, had his own house in one moment, and, and then in the next moment was picked up and imprisoned. He was not being seen for who he was, and, and he lost all of that. But one of the things he, 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 he did was he said, you can steal my wallet, you can steal my car, and I can get another one. But when you steal my identity, 
then you've really done something very, very grave. And this, this, this cost a great deal of self-esteem. And as we know, self-esteem is the basis for the building of, of democracy and, and equality. You know, uh, there's all sorts of th- sort of issues around identity that makes this a very complicated story that a lot of it doesn't, that doesn't isn't 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 accessible or or easily uh, or readily available to people in effect who want to know because so much has happened as a result of internment. There's a upsurge in in um, in people applying for naturalization and so on and so forth. People would be changing their names, and they, you have to do. There's a legal process, and you'll see that there's an uptick in. That uh, people, in effect, who you know, you know, John, you know, Ivan Chichiroba becomes John Smith. Um, so, so there are people in this country today who you know kind of have no no understanding of of you know the the family history and where it comes from. Internees were you know separated from from their families, separated from their communities, separated from from their culture and their own distinct. Ukrainian culture. After the internment camps were closed, uh, these individuals, because of the traumatization and the stigma and so on, um, it would have been very um, normal for them to, you know, accept that break in culture and exacerbate it uh, in terms of those individuals, you know, changing their names, uh, refusing to speak Ukrainian in the home, uh, refusing to engage in uh, Ukrainian traditions, cultural traditions, uh, religious, spiritual traditions as well, and literally refusing um, their families to engage in those traditions as well. And again, this was a fear-based response. Uh, It is a protective strategy because those individuals who came out of the camps did this because from their perspective, uh, they were protecting themselves and their families. They were always trying to reinvent their lives so that they looked like these per- perfect Anglos. I mean, my dad wouldn't even um, have any of his kids speak Ukrainian. And he spoke Ukrainian fluently, but he claimed that he couldn't read it. When I went to Ukraine, I um, took a picture of this one thing, and I, I took it as a joke on my dad, basically, and it was a word that read exactly the same in English and Ukrainian, like all the letters just happened coincidentally to be the same. And I showed it to him and I said, look, Dad, he says, I can't read it. It's in Ukrainian. Like that's trauma response. He had the Ukrainian beaten out of him. So my dad, uh, you know, I'm from Brantford, Ontario. So he was the first non-Anglo to be a member of the Brantford Golf and Country Club. And you sort of think, why would you even want to be there? But that was just him. Like, he had to prove that he was as good as other people. Um, But he was very much, very popular in Brantford. Everybody knew my dad. He was just this bigger-than-life person. But they wouldn't know him as a Ukrainian except for his name. And he looked so Ukrainian, like he was a dark Ukrainian. You know, the classic dark Ukrainian look, like he looked like a bear walking. Um, So he couldn't get away from everybody knowing that he was. But um, when my books came out, he he did um, start embracing his heritage more. So we're standing here in front of uh, the uh, Ukrainian church, St. Mary's Ukrainian Catholic Church. Um, it's a fairly new building. It was built in the, uh, the uh, 1990s. 
um, far away from the ethnic section of town, but it was the, the place they could get the best property. The community makes cabbage rolls and, and pierogies and different you know, Easter bread at Easter and sells them. And uh, um, every Thursday usually is cooking day and Friday is the day that people come in and uh, pick up their orders or buy them. So there may be people in and out while we're here. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. And if you look at the dedication of the windows, they're all families who've been here for, you know, like the founding families of, uh, of the Ukrainian community in Sault Ste. Marie. Um, it's one of the only churches in town now that uh, you can still burn candles. Um, for you know prayers for loved ones for those who have passed and and uh so they they continue lots of traditions here they are the put ahead buyers so good <laughs> so i spent 13 years here volunteering yeah. there are lots of volunteers so Charlotte, this is Karen, and this is Jeff and James. It wasn't until I was in my 20s and I spent time with my grandmother, I started to do a lot of Ukrainian cooking, and then slowly my mother started to make Ukrainian food too. My mother and her sisters, who who were loved, I loved my family, and uh, but, you know, that whole rejection of the immigrant experience. We want to be English. Um, you know, one of my aunts was the Anglican minister's wife and, uh, and did it to a T. We have friends who, whose names changed after World War I. You know, they became the Whites or they became the Wheatleys, even though their name in Ukraine would have been Shnechna. Uh, uh, they, they anglicized it. I, I think there definitely is something that is passed down, whether it's learned or whether it has become part of our genetic makeup. I don't know. And it, it's, it's a, a sad situation when someone's voice is taken away from them. And I think that in this case, there were a lot of Ukrainians and other Eastern Europeans who had their voices taken away. We went on normal family lives. We never, we never even thought ourselves as foreigners or anything, you know. Uh, I went to the local high school, went to the local grade school. My, grandfather, my dad went to grade school here and his sister. There was only the two on that side of the family. So I don't think... If there was trauma, it wasn't obvious. We were basically very Canadian. We grew up in the environment as I would presume any other kid in this community would have grown up, already assimilated into the, what, what's here. But I don't find that assimilation too unusual in that you figure the time and era he come over into a community like the Sioux where you sort of leaned on each other's anyway. I think you mixed and simulated whether the government wanted it or not. <laughs> you know, so I, it's, uh, I think it was just an automatic thing, just a natural thing. 
Okay. The marriage certificate is probably irrelevant other than it shows where there's confusion in names. My own father's side of the name, Parniak, has been consistent. My grandmother, her name's changed from Chernetsky to Herencheshin, and then back to Kana and uh, over here, then it was changed to Kanuski on the gravestone. And my, my grandfather, now again, referring back to Nick Parniak, I uh, got a, a naturalization certificate from September 19th, 1924, where he was naturalized Canadian citizen. So the question is, am I Polish? Am I Ukrainian? Am I Austrian? All of these nationalities were showing up for the same village. <laughs> so you don't know what your ethnic background was. Um, the local priest uh, asked me if I wanted to go over to uh, Europe with him uh, one year. I went to Europe with him and he took me to uh, uh, the part of the Ukraine where this village is and went down and actually found the village and I had pictures from some family that sent they sent it to me from way back or sent it to my parents and our grandparents and as uh, so I took it there and uh, a woman there ran down to the village uh, area and, and got a hold of a boy and said yes they, they're related they know this lady so I was able to find contact but I couldn't communicate with them so in my family I'm the first one since my grandfather, the first one to have gone back to Ukraine. None of the other family members have done that. They have just so successfully washed away the Ukrainianness. The reason that I wanted to know about my own heritage was because I knew nothing that was taken away from me. Um, it, I was curious. And so it's kind of weird because, like, my dad was trying to save me from the trauma of what happened to him. And by doing that, all it did was raise my curiosity. I really cherished the fact that I was able to reclaim my heritage. They know something went on, but there might be this denial in the outside world uh, of what happened in terms of, you know, did it happen at all? Was it that bad? And as soon as someone has these kind of two conflicting narratives within them, it can create a lot of psychological stress. Finding out the truth, what happened, trying to make sense of it, trying to understand it, helps to reduce that psychological stress and is actually part of the healing for, for that individual in the second or third or fourth generation. I belong to a group called the Ukrainian Cultural Society. We all were raised in a part of Sault Ste. Marie called Bayview, which lots of Ukrainians lived in. There was a Ukrainian church, a Ukrainian hall. The uh, curator of the museum, Kim Forbes, kind of challenged me by saying, well, why don't you do a local story? I'll give you three months of the museum, the space, and, and whatever support I can give you. And why don't you do a local story? So we contacted everybody we could think of, collected all kinds of artifacts from people. And our exhibit was very successful because it didn't run for uh, uh, three months, it ran for six months. And it culminated in the monument being placed in front of the, the museum, the one uh, to the internment camp. So the question then becomes, you know, how do we move forward? How do we learn from that? How do we, do we heal from it? 
acknowledgement and understanding is is very important. So acknowledging as as a first step, just building a few you know memorials or commemoration places in a country is healing into itself because it shows those individuals, you know, that this atrocity did happen, this hardship did happen. But if we don't do this, uh, if we just maintain this code of silence, you know, at a societal level, maintain this, you know, rationalization, we'll hold on to the argument that, you know, Canada is a just society, no matter what. Uh, we therefore don't learn from our mistakes. Then uh, we have the same assumptions uh, that led to, you know, setting up the internment camp. We maintain those assumptions uh, through the generations, which, you know, opens up the door for the internment of Japanese Canadians during World War II, for example. Uh, many of the experiences of Indigenous Canadians, for example. Part of the assumption is, you know, Canada is a just society, uh, but maybe we need to tweak that a little bit and just, you know, say Canada is working toward becoming a just society. The issue of internment is really centers around this notion of education. It's really about public awareness because it's, it has huge implications for the country and how it treats new arrivals, how it treats minorities. And like, this is, this is the central question of our time, but it's always been a question. Um, and so the more we know, the more we learn, um, the more uh, we can make things right, um, not just with the past, but also with the future. Ukrainians, you know, worldwide have suffered, as many, many peoples have, and that they suffered the way they did in Canada, a nation that they calls it a democracy, is particularly sad. You have to honor the trauma. You have to acknowledge that it happened, and it doesn't matter who it happened to. We as human beings have a responsibility to talk about it and to let people air what happened to them and their families. We're all human and we're all equal and if you like if you just kind of remembered that a lot of this stuff wouldn't happen anymore. You've been listening to Voices of Internment by documentary producers Jeff Preyra and James Motluck. My name is Kathy Baudet. My name is John Parniak. My name is Bogdan Kordan. My name is Brent Bezo. I'm Sandra Semchuk. My name is Marcia Skripik. Thank you as well to Marina Ray, Sylvia Putz, Reg Baudet, and support from the Canadian First World War Internment Recognition Fund. Technical production, Austin Pomeroy and Danielle Duval. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.